Welcome everybody to Hacker Valley Blue, where we get the industry's best and brightest cyber defenders to share their experiences and tips on how you can better defend your assets and networks. This season, I'm gathering some of the very best blue teamers across the field to form my all-star team of defenders who will use their talents against some of the biggest cyber threats that we face today. Join me as I meet with my team, learn about their origins, what drives them, and the pivotal role they play in the world of cyber defense. When it comes to IT and security, we can agree on two things. Complexity is increasing and manual asset inventory approaches no longer cut it. It's time to adapt. And that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius correlates asset data from existing cybersecurity and SaaS solutions to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and, un and automate action, giving you the confidence to control complexity. Sign up for a free walkthrough of the platform at exonius.com slash get a tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash a dash tour. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome everybody to Hacker Valley Blue. I am your host, Davin Jackson. Thank you to Ron and Chris for picking me to, to host this season. This season's theme is called the Defenders. So all season, I'm going around finding my best team of defenders um, on the blue team side of things. And I've had innovators, I've had craft, crafty veterans, um, but I needed to get someone who's like a specialist, like a warrior who I can have, who, who I could call out and say, you know what, this is the stuff that needs to get done. And I know that this person has the skills and the knowledge and just the overall badassery to, 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 to make that happen. And when I thought of, when I thought of who I could pick, uh, first person that came to mind is Leslie Carhart. Uh, she is a martial artist. She is a DFIR, um, lead investigator. I think I said that right. <laughs> um, she also works with ICS. We're going to talk about that. Um, she is an Air Force veteran and so many more things, but I'm going to let her talk to you about that. So everybody here, please welcome my guest, Leslie Carhart. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining. Um, and like, I was super excited that you excited that that you agreed to come on, and um, like I said, I, I'm just a big fan. First of all, uh, thank you for your service. I know you are recently retired, uh, but thank you for your service, and also thank you on a personal note. Thank you for giving the guideline on how to do um, the outlines for for sans uh, for sans testing. Oh sure, like that, <laughs> that that actually helped me a lot when. Um, when I was testing for my G pen. So thank you for that as well. Um, so Leslie, like I said, I talked you up a lot, but why don't you talk about yourself and, you know, introduce yourself and, and, and how you got into this thing we call blue teaming. <laughs> wow. Um, how did I get into this? I, I get asked this question so often and I hate answering it because I have like the prototypical movie story of how I got into computer hacking and it's not, normal. It, it Like we have this idea, like there's this misconception in the world that everybody who's a, a good computer security or computer hacking person is started out when they were, when they were five and they, they, you know, did all kinds of crazy stuff, super young in their teenage years. And um, that's so rare, you know, especially today that the newest generation of people who are working in the field, they're they're oftentimes people who didn't own a computer until they were an older teenager or an adult. Um, and they're, they're awesome at cybersecurity now, but I uh, grew up on a farm 
and uh, got a uh, my my parents got a computer for farm inventory control uh, in and finances and stuff when I was seven or so, seven or eight, and uh, not a lot to do there by yourself on a farm. So uh, it's either work on the farm or it's work on the computer. And so I figured out how to use the computer. And I uh, learned how to program when I was eight or so, eight or nine, somewhere in there. And uh, when I was 15, I got hired on as a uh, professional developer because it was an era when anybody who could build, you know, databases for e-commerce and things like that could get a job. Um, so that's, that's how I got into the field and got into the hacking community. Um, it was certainly a, a, a long winded road full of a lot of different odd jobs. Um, I of course fixed airplanes for the air force for a while and, um, wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but it was interesting exposure to like aircraft computing systems, which was really interesting learning about avionics and ground control systems. Um, I spent some time as a network technician. Uh, I would have a degree in network engineering, actually. And uh, because it, when, when I went to college, there weren't degrees in cybersecurity. But yeah, I mean, I'd done a lot of a, a, a lot of a, a lot of different elements of IT and uh, a lot of different elements of computer hacking. And, uh, you know, you just eventually hopefully find a niche that you enjoy because there's so much space across cybersecurity. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I didn't know that you uh, also worked on aircraft. So I was I was a crew chief on the F-16s and, okay, then, cool. and then the F-117. So I was stationed over there in, in the exciting town of Holloman uh, Air Force Base in Alamogordo, New, ne- New oh. Mexico. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than my nut. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. So, so I'm pretty sure we could talk about that. And that's, that, that could probably be for another episode. But um. What was it that drew you to blue? Uh, like, what, what, was there something in particular that was just like this? You've talked about finding your niche. Uh, what, what was it about the, you know, the defensive side that you felt like, you know what? Yeah, this is this this is right for me. I've done some red teaming. I'm um, actually uh, I've done some pen testing. I've done some red teaming and red versus blue training, things like that. Um, and I'm okay at it. I'm not an expert because that's not what I do all day. And the thing is, you have to choose in cybersecurity. You really do. Either you stay a high level generalist forever or you focus on niches and you've got to pick. And you can have multiple ones that speak to you that are interesting that you enjoy. But in the end, you know, like, and there's niches that don't fit for specific people. Like, like being a pen tester is very, very different from being like a malware reverser or an exploit researcher. Like, um, they require different attention spans. They, they require different uh, interaction with human beings, uh, different levels of focus on tasks. So different personalities are going to, and learning types are going to focus towards different areas. But in the end, you're going to end up with four or five different areas of cybersecurity that you're like, this is really cool. And I get that from mentees all the time when I'm talking to young or new people in InfoSec. They're like, I want to do pen testing and I want to do malware reversing and I want to do forensics. And they're like, I'm glad that all these things speak to you. But in the end, after you get some exposure to them all, you're going to have to pick. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've always been interested in digital forensics. Uh, it, it speaks to my personality type. I, I like doing the investigative detective work. I think that's really interesting. I enjoy it, but I enjoy red teaming too. I enjoy pen testing. Uh, you know, there's there's satisfaction that comes out of both of those in different types of victories, you know, that you have. And then there's there's a monotonous, unpleasant work in both of them too. So and then you got to find the things that work for you and then pick an area of focus. 
No, I agree 100%. Um, I think I've said this a couple times. Uh, I did pen testing for about a year and a half, and then I um, discovered digital forensics. And then, like you, I was like, yes, that that itched that side of my brain of not only do I get to investigate, now I get to figure things out and figure out why things um, are the way they are. And um, I took a course and I tested for it. And even the exam was really cool because it was a practical exam where you had to do an investigation and you had to make sure you followed chain of uh, chain of custody and everything. Um, and I went and found a mentor uh, when I, where I was living in Connecticut at the time. And unfortunately, to do forensics work, you had to be law enforcement. And uh, my time of doing like physical uh, physical training and 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 stuff like that and basic training all over again had yeah. had had passed. But I think it made me a better pen tester uh, because of the fact that now with that training, I'm able to know okay. If I were investigating me, what would I look for? Okay, I would probably check logs. I would probably check this and that. Um, so I think it actually sharpened my skills as a pen tester. So it it wasn't it didn't go to waste. So you you started off you started off doing programming and coding. Uh, you eventually move over to blue teaming and investigations and uh, digital forensics, and then you like you said you found your niche. Um, and now you are a incident response practice lead, uh, but you focus with uh, industrial control systems. So that's that's a lot <laughs> to say in yes. a sentence. But, uh, <laughs> you can uh, just kind of break down, you know, what, uh, what what that is and what your job entails. Yes. Yeah, so a power plant or a pipeline or an oil platform or something or a manufacturing facility gets hacked. So there's non-standard computer systems. I'm one of the very few people in the world who gets called out to investigate that. It's a small community. We all kind of know each other. So uh, yeah, small community of practice across just a few companies. And uh, yeah, we specialize in that. You know, it's, it's you know, when we, we get a call about one of those systems that it's not a traditional like Windows or Mac based computer network. It's got PLCs on it. It's got HMIs on it. It's got, you know, industrial devices that could potentially harm or kill people on it. That's that's the type of stuff that I investigate. Um, we call it critical infrastructure in our business. The company that I work for, Dragos, uh, we, we talk about securing critical infrastructure. But the definition of what critical infrastructure is varies by country, even by state. But, you know, there's some things that are pretty universal, like power, water, et cetera, oil and gas, things like that. But manufacturing falls into it in different places. Um, pharmaceuticals, things like that, transportation sometimes. So, Yeah. Um, so my my niche with pen testing now, um, it, it went from web app and now I eventually um, I transitioned into API pen testing. Hmm. And when I talk about ICS systems, I actually say um, I compare it to APIs. I'm like ICS systems are basically like the APIs to life as we know it. Right. Um, from <laughs> from the lighting, from lights to heat to transportation, hmm. supply chains. Um, so that's how I kind of compared it when I was trying to learn about it. But you made a valid point that you're you're one of the very few people um, who who work on on ICS systems. And I think one of the misconceptions out there is that it's it's 
completely foreign. Very similar to what I learned with APIs was at first no one wanted to touch it, no one understood it. And then once I got into it, I'm like, okay, JSON's not that scary. Um, is that the same with ICS? I mean, is there is there a heavy learning curve to, to, to learn how to test or, or work in those systems? So a couple things to understand. ICS is a huge space. It's it's even perhaps bigger than some IT spaces. So what we call operational technology or OT, those industrial spaces, because every vertical is different. Like electric doesn't look anything like manufacturing. Different vendors in play, different protocols in play, different network topologies in play. So um, it's another one where you kind of have to focus again. You have to focus again, like on another niche. So it's a big, it's a huge space. It's overwhelming if you try to focus on everything, but individual niches are manageable. And what you have to understand, secondly, about industrial environments is we have something called the Purdue model um, that's useful to just understand at a high level academically how they work. So in the Purdue model, it's it's a layer cake like the OSI model. And at the top of it's your enterprise, your corporate network. And then you have some, hopefully, some kind of DMZ separating your factory or industrial network from the enterprise, right? So there's a layer. There's a layer for a DMZ there. And beneath that, the computer systems are pretty familiar. They're mostly Windows or Linux-based. They're the servers that provide services, telemetry, things like that, management for and in remote access for the systems in the industrial environment. But beneath that, as we go down that layer cake, the systems become less and less familiar. So we're working down from Windows computers, Linux computers, things like that, that are rather familiar, um, down to simple electronic computers, so PLCs, things like that, and then down into simple electronic devices, so things like sensors and actuators, stuff like that. So in that layer cake, the top layers of it look pretty familiar. The way you're going to do forensics or pen testing on them is going to be fairly familiar. A lot of them are legacy devices, so that's going to impact that drastically, especially for hardware and software for forensics. But um, it's, it's not stuff that's not documented. As you get down into the lower levels of an industrial system, though, the systems don't look like the computers we're familiar with and our tools are familiar with anymore. When you start interacting with PLCs, you've got to understand how PLCs work and how their firmware works, and how they're programmed, how ladder logic works, things like that. So there is a learning curve there, and it's mostly the lower levels. But you can come in, understand the Purdue model, and start to understand the upper levels and do some useful things in terms of like passive monitoring and detection. Because an intruder usually has to come through those upper levels too. They're coming down from IT, if there's an IT compromise, or they're coming in through like out-of-band connections that are typically at a higher level. So they have to oftentimes, not always, oftentimes an intrusion, traverse those more familiar levels. So there's stuff you can do. But um, those lower levels, there is a learning curve there. And you have to understand not just the, the systems in a vacuum, but the holistic process. Like what, what widgets are you making? And why is that dangerous? And what safety controls are in place, et cetera, et cetera. Because again, you're dealing with dangerous stuff. And I think that's that's the the scary part of it, especially from a pen tester's perspective. It's <clears throat> I don't want to do anything and like I don't want to take down a power grid or I don't want to take down a critical system. Um, and I, I've I haven't worked on on them uh, too much at all. But um, I've heard the same thing that there's a lot of, you know, legacy systems. And mm -hmm. for a pen tester, that's like, you know light bulbs and start yes. everything starts flashing uh but again it's still that at that that being nervous about okay 
how do I navigate this? And I, I want to make sure. So I think that's one of the issues that that a lot of people have when learning that system. Um, but speaking of um, misconceptions, what are what are some other misconceptions that um, that the, maybe not necessarily the public, but the cybersecurity community have that, um, you know, you, you wish you could uh, correct if you had the opportunity to? Yes. So the reason for the legacy systems, um, uh, this has caused problems, unhealthy relationships between operational teams and cybersecurity teams for years. The systems are legacy for a reason. They were intended to be legacy because buying an industrial system is a lot like buying like an IBM system in the 70s or 80s. You're buying this whole package. So you buy all the levels of the Purdue model. You buy the traditional computer systems and networking devices, and you also buy the low-level devices. And they're all vetted and certified to work together. So you can't just pull pieces out. You can't just be like, I'm going to upgrade to Windows 11. Like that, that not only could cause operational issues in a system that is very sensitive, but it could also void your warranty. And you're relying on that system to have a support contract and a warranty for 30 years because you're buying this whole giant system and it's really expensive. So you're expecting a 20 or 30 year life cycle with maybe a few major updates to it on a schedule that the vendor provides. So you can't just go in there and install an EDR or you know upgrade Windows because again, you have to think about the process as a whole. This is a whole system that all works together. Little bits all work together and function together to function safely and function within the parameters that the vendor has specified. So the legacy systems there are expected. They are the Windows 10 systems that are being installed today in new industrial networks or updated industrial networks. They're going to be in play for a decade at least. And that's just how it's intended to work, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's not something that you want to just go in and blast, you know, with a shotgun and say, oh, you've got to upgrade all your systems. They can't. They're going to lose their, their millions of dollars of support contracts on a power plant or something. You got to think about, uh, we got to be creative. We got to think about other mitigations we can put in play. Yep. And, and I think that's that's a major difference uh, than, I guess, regular infrastructure, uh, you know, because that was that's that's one of the misconceptions that I've heard from a few guests here is that, you know, oh, blue teams don't patch their stuff. Um, <laughs> and there's always, you know, some red tape or something that has to do with it. But, but with ICS systems, it seems like there's a there's a reason. And it's like you said, we don't want to blow millions of dollars um, messing with things, voiding warranties or possibly even breaking something that will take down. So thank you for, for, <laughs> for and, breaking. And like tangentially like that, people are like, why aren't the protocols secured? Why aren't, why aren't the protocols encrypted? It's because they have to work fast and efficiently and reliably. Reliability is king there. Um, if you're talking about the protocol that tells your system if there's a fire or not, like you don't want there to be an encryption error and the message doesn't get through. That's why it's not encrypted. I mean, there's a few industrial and protocols that are encrypted, but the really critical ones at the low levels, most of those are pretty simplistic and not encrypted for a reason. They need to work fast and they need to be effective and reliability is, is king there. I just thought of it. I'm like, okay, so basically on the CIA triad, it's, it's more about the A. 100%. So it'd be CI and then like like a oversized capital A for it. Yeah, we flip um, it on the side. We flip we flip the CIA tri triangle on the side for, for ICS. And it's for a reason again, you know, and we can make things secure still. We can still pen test. We can still do threat hunts. We can still do instant response, but we have to do it within different parameters. And that means getting kind of creative sometimes. I agree. I Thank, again, thank you for explaining that. Mm -hmm. um, so now sw switching gears um, to 
to the DFIR side of things. Um, now, I, I, we're talking about DFIR, but you know, for some of the listeners or viewers, since we are doing a video component uh, this season, um, what is what is DFIR and what is that process like? So digital forensics and incident response is two jobs crammed together because they work efficiently and effectively that way for most organizations. And they're very different. So the first, the first half of DFIR is digital forensics, and that's doing technical forensic investigations of digital devices. And typically, what does that look like? It could be hard drives. That's the most old-fashioned form of digital forensics, pretty much. It could be network logs or event logs, things like that, different types of logging data or network data. And finally, uh, you know, one of our favorites most recently is memory data. So memory data from computers contains a lot of interesting information that's not necessarily logged anywhere else or retained on the hard drives. So memory is a really cool space for forensics. It has been for the last decade, but that's not going away. So different areas of doing forensic analysis to find out what's happened on a computer, retrieve deleted content, um, understand a timeline of what was done on the computer by the user or by somebody malicious or by a piece of malware. So building that timeline is a really important part. So that's technical analytical detective work. So that's one half of digital forensics and incident response. The other half is incident response or incident handling. Um, Sometimes we call that incident command. And it's very similar to incident command in emergency response. So medical or fire, et cetera, disaster relief, things like that. And that has to do with controlling the flow of crisis response. It's crisis management. So it's something catastrophic has happened cybersecurity-wise in our case, and we have to put the right people and processes and timelines and communications in place to go through the life cycle of doing the forensics, understanding what happened, containing a threat, getting rid of the threat off the network, you know, eradicating it, and then finally recovering the network or the operations to their original state or where, where they need to be. So controlling that whole life cycle. And again, it's like it's like responding to a fire or a pandemic or, um, you know, an ER. You're doing triage, you're, you know, shuffling human beings around and you're doing crisis communication. So very different role. It's uh, it's human fronted in that case. Uh, It's project management and it's human communications management. Um, And even though there's a very, very, very different jobs, um, they fit together in an important way in terms of a cybersecurity incident. So we usually see those two job roles combined together um, for different jobs. So people are doing forensics, or at least their team is doing forensics, somebody in their team is doing forensics, and they or a member of their team is also doing the incident command, the incident response of you know, doing the project management and the crisis management. That was that was a great explanation for it. I think you're absolutely right there that, yeah, it is something that has to kind of been be done um, at the same time because you don't want to waste any time saying, OK, here's here's what we did on the forensic side. Uh, and now that person and then you have to bring it over and let them respond. And then, you know, because uh, usually at, during those emergencies, it's like time is of the essence. So you want to make sure you have everything um, just on point at the same time. But what are some of the challenges that you do face um, or what are some of the what are some of the harder things to, I guess, to respond to um, in, in with, with, with all the attacks and, you know, things going on today? 
Wow, what a what a huge question. I mean, for incident response in general and, and differ in general, what makes it challenging sometimes is um, knowing where you're at in the investigation and making decisions about that. So I talked about the different phases of incident response. You're moving from forensics to making a decision to contain a threat, lock it down, try to get the people off your network if they're, they're bad people on your network. And then at, at some point, you're making a decision to move to recovery and to rebuilding your network. And those are not easy decisions to make. Even if you have a good incident response plan and you document things well, at some point you have to make a confidence decision of, I know enough forensically about what these bad people or this piece of malware has done on my network that I think that I can kick them out successfully. Um, and then balancing that with, well, I'm waiting to kick them out. I'm losing business. I'm losing money. My people can't work, things like that. Those are tough risk management decisions to make. And it's tough for everybody, um, even experienced people. You know, you you can make risk educated risk decisions, but that tolerance and that confidence is going to vary for everybody. So that's one of the hardest parts is making those very determined and, and decisive decisions to move from one phase of incident response to another. And knowing that there's always some margin for error because you're never going to be 100% confident you know the root cause of an incident. It's just not possible. You can get close, but you're just never going to be entirely sure. So that's that's a challenge, certainly. For industrial incident response, we face a lot of unique challenges. Um, the facilities, again, are, are legacy often. So, you know, forensic tools that we use, modern EDR doesn't exist there. Cloud rarely exists there. Um, so a lot of modern security tools don't exist in those environments. And so um, you have to adapt. You have to use perhaps legacy forensic tools or build your own. It can be really tough. I actually have a follow-up question with that. But before I do that, um, we do have to acknowledge our sponsor for this season, um, Uptick's. Uptix provides the first unified cloud-native security analytics platform that enables both endpoint and cloud security from a common solution to enable security professionals to quickly prioritize, investigate, and respond to threats across a company's entire attack surface. By unifying visibility in a single tool, security operations analysts can focus on one tool set and interface to improve productivity and efficiency. Now, Leslie, you were just talking about a second ago, um, you know, finding those things that to get all that information uh, to, to make an informed decision. Um, would have would having a tool like that that kind of has all the logs and all the information that you have on one single platform uh, would that help would that would that help make those type of decisions a little bit easier I mean it's a it's a heavy decision to make but would that make it a little bit easier so the value of monitoring and using a sim product or an aggregation product is oftentimes tuning. Um, there's no security product out there that is free of false positives. It doesn't exist. Nobody can sell you a magic black box that isn't going to have some false positives in your environment because every environment is different and detections are a matter of, of confidence. So definitely focus on trying to aggregate detections and logs to, to less platforms because the way you're going to tune out those false positives is, is a dedicated process over time to tune a monitoring product to your environment. Um, so, so definitely try to consolidate, tr definitely try to do your, your tuning in a centralized location, whether you're in IT or OT, those solutions are going to vary, but, but definitely a way to go for your security operations. 
Thank you for that answer. Mm-hmm. And thank you to Upticks. For more information on Upticks, you can go to their website, upticks.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S.com. I have another question, and I think this is more about my own curiosity. Um, is there a story that you can share, obviously, without getting in trouble or breaking any type of NDAs, um, where it was like you where you put all the pieces together in an investigation? And could you also describe that feeling? Because on the red team side, like there's this feeling of like euphoria when when we pop that shell when we get an exploit to work we've crafted it we've done all the scans and everything and we got it to work and it's almost like a a happy dance is there something like that on the dfir side um that you know when you guys figure it out or uh, and determine what happened i'd say it's the first pivot in a forensic investigation. So um, I told, I, I talked earlier about timelines and how they're really important for forensics and incident response, building a comprehensive timeline of what the bad thing or the bad person did. Um, you know, and that could be across network, it could be across systems, memory, files, logs, etc. But this comprehensive story narrative of what they did. And going into an incident um, where you don't really have any information about what's happened, it's always nerve-wracking, whether that's an exercise or a real incident or whatever. You, you come in in the beginning and you're like, oh, my God, what if I don't find them? Like, it doesn't matter how experienced you are and how many incidents you responded to. Like, the first few hours of any blue team exercise or CTF or actual incident response is like, oh, my God, what if I don't find them this time? And they're always there somewhere. You know, in defense and depth, hopefully you've got multiple layers of detection and forensics and things like that. But the really good feeling is, like, after you get to the second pivot point, what I mean by that is, like, you'll start finding things that maybe look like they're malicious or related to the report or the ticket or the incident, whatever you, you know. Um, and you'll be like, I'm not sure. But then you'll see something else that corroborates what what you found and you start building that timeline. You're like, okay, I have a sequence of events now. This thing that happened and then this other thing happened. Okay, we're fleshing out a story now. And you only have two data points, perhaps. Like two, you have a, a, a point of data and then a pivot to another point of data. But at that point, you feel like you're actually succeeding. Like you feel like you're actually building a timeline of events. Like, and until then, you're you're like, oh my god, what if this is a false positive? What if I haven't found them? Like, um, and then it's just at that point, there's a little more confidence and corroboration that you're actually tracking the adversary activity, and you can start pivoting off those to other points and building out your timeline in a more confident way. So. I think that's the equation of the feeling like of popping a box on the red team, you know, where you see your beacon come back or whatever. Like it's, it's that feeling when you're like, I can put a second line in my Excel timeline. Like it's, it's, it's really good. So yeah, if you're a a novice at at blue teaming and you get, you're about to get thrown in your first like blue team, red team exercise or um, course or CTF or something, or you're working on your first incident, first day is always going to be hell. <laughs> like just, just, so you know, the first day is always going to be hell. Like, cause you're like, I can't find them. I can't find them. I can't find them. Like, and you're like trying to figure out what tools you use and what logs you've got and things like that. And you're like, I can't find them. And you, you're really stressed out, but then you find something and you're like, I don't know. I don't know. But then you find a second thing that's related to that first thing. And you're like, Oh, I got him. I got him. I got him. I can do this now. <laughs> like I know where to look. <laughs> so it's, it's always like that. Yeah. Um, that that actually sounds very similar to when I got my first pen tester job. 
because for months, you know, I'm doing these trainings, I'm doing these CTFs. So there's always a vulnerability. There's always, mm-hmm. there's always a shell to pop. There's always, there's always an angle to pivot and, and, and elevate privileges. And I remember going on that first real pen test and it was the same way. It was like, what if I don't find anything? Oh crap. What if I don't, what, what, what if, and it's like my whole, all this training that I've done was a lie, you know? Um, and then in, like, you find a vulnerability and you're like, okay, I think I might've found a vulnerability or I might've found something that, that, that's, uh, you know, a, a service version that, that might be vulnerable. But then you're like, oh, am I running into a rabbit hole? Am I running in? Is this a false positive? You know, um, and then and then when you do, you know, you do your research, and you're like, OK, so there is an there is an exploit available for this. And it's like, OK, let's craft the exploit. And then it's like, oh, I hope I'm doing this right. And this isn't, you know, you know, garbage. And then when you do that and like I said, like you like you said, when you get that that beacon back and it's just like to me, I, I, I literally like get up and dance or I, I in my yeah. head. um like I'm a video, I'm a gamer. So in my head, uh, the victory theme from Final Fantasy. Da, 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 da. Can I sing that on your podcast? It's you getting yeah. a copyright infringement. <laughs> yeah, that was like like anytime, anytime. That's the first thing that pops into my head. As a matter of fact, um, I did some videos for Try Hack Me for the advent of cyber, and every time I finished the day, I pr- I played that. I love um, that. So, um, but yeah, that that's the first thing that comes in my head. Um, so again, that's probably another conversation we can get into with, with gaming. But um, but I guess uh, so. With with all of your years of experience, and you know, with like like we talked about with the advancement of attacks, um, are there anything in your opinion that you feel should change that would help improve, um, you know, testing in ICS systems or even the the digital forensics and incident response process? Again, a big question. Uh, for ICS, we need people desperately. It's an incredibly small practice. I just had somebody call me today asking how to hire people in ICS cybersecurity. And I'm like, I'm sorry, there's like four of us, like not really, but maybe maybe a hundred, like not not very many in in ICS incident response. We're just feeding off of each other. Like there's a few organizations that do it, and we just hire each other's people over and over again. And what that means is like, I mean, we, we have to hire people in on pipelines. We have to train people because there aren't people who natively have that skill set. Um, it means hiring IT cybersecurity people and training them to learn more about OT or vice versa. But if you really want to get into that space, uh, we need people desperately. And you can start out by understanding a vertical. You know, like if you work in a business that has manufacturing or, you know, some kind of, you know, backnet systems in the building, things like that you could interact with. Um, Start learning about that process. Start learning how things work. You've got to be in the space. You have to want to know how everything works. Like you have to want to know how fertilizer is made and how eggs are packaged and how water gets to your faucet, things like that. You have to want to know how everything works because everything is a process and they all have industrial systems. So Pick one and start to understand it. And then once you understand the process at a high level, you don't have to be a mechanical engineer or a chemical engineer. Um, Then move to, okay, what vendors are in that space? And what protocols do those vendors use? And can I download the manuals from ScribD or Google or something? Um, Because people stick stuff up there and and understand how this device works. So pick a niche and and learn how that works. That's a place to start. But yeah, we need people. 
We need people who want to get into ICS cybersecurity and are willing to learn how everything works and not just understand all the things that go into differ, but also understand at a high level how processes work and safety that goes into working in our environments. That's a huge thing. I have to know how to park my car at an electric plant. Um, I have to know what PPE to wear. I have to know how to deal with uh, hazard warning signals at uh, refineries, things like that. So there is a lot there. It's a hefty job, but you can learn it. And we need people. We really, really need people. And we don't need just incident responders. We need people doing research on cybersecurity, on industrial stuff too. Um, device research, uh, secure development. Um, and then, you know, research on holistic processes and how they can be exploited and compromised. We need forensic tools for low-level devices. We need all that stuff. We really, really need people to do more work in the space. There's a huge void. I get asked about hiring people all the time and there just isn't anybody. Yeah. Um, and again, it, going back to my API comparison, I think that's some of the same issues is that, you know, because not it's not even that it's a new field or, but because it's such a vast territory um a lot of people kind of shy away from it or there aren't there aren't training like for for apis um like there's they're starting to come out with trainings now but you know three four five years ago like you said it was like okay i need to go look at swagger files and i need to go look at documentation and okay i need to know exactly what's happening on the back end so when you're authenticating what is this doing what is that doing when are you getting this token <laughs> you know um how is this being implemented? You know, and then from there, it's like, okay, now you can start asking those questions. Well, what if, oh, this this user account is just a number. So what if I just increment or, or uh, by one or go down by one? Um, and like like I said, they're starting to be, uh, they're, they're starting to change that and they're starting to have some some trainings come out or a lot of it is, is associated with, with mobile pen testing. Um, but are there any type of formal trainings for, for ICS system in, um, and with cybersecurity? Yeah, so SANS has a couple of very good classes on, on ICS cybersecurity. Um, so, so I can recommend those, certainly. Um, I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I teach class. I think it's, I think it's very good. I teach a five-day <laughs> class at Dragos on industrial cybersecurity. If you work for the government or a utility, Idaho National Laboratories offers some very phenomenal training on industrial cybersecurity. They have some free videos and things up on their website, too, that everybody should check out who's interested. But for their actual classes, there are some requirements because it's a long wait list to get into their programs. Um, and then also for, for um, utilities, there are, um, there are some DHS and CISA resources available as well. But it is fairly limited. Again, it's a niche space. Yeah. But um, but it's great that that are, there are um, courses out there, and yes, you know you don't have to toot, you don't have to yeah. toot your own horn, but you know what you should you should because yeah. uh, you know that that's very commendable. You you saw that there's a niche, there's a need, and you 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 know you took the baton and said, okay, I'll I'll be the change that I want to see. So <laughs> so um, but but speaking about that training. What are what are some things I think you touched on it earlier, uh, you know, about reading, you know, reading documentation and, and, and certain things to focus on. But in in your training course, since since you do have one, um, what are what are some of the things that you focus on that that, that you try to stress to your students? So, first of all, is I mean, we already talked about misconceptions, which are really important to understand, but also consequence modeling is something that is operators and engineers in industrial environments are 
pretty good at and we're kind of bad at in IT and we could learn from them. So that is, instead of just saying, hey, my domain controller is a crown jewel and I should be worried about it and put security on it. It's also going out to your business and saying, what's our worst day ever? What, what would be a really bad thing that would happen to our business at a high level? Like, is it us not being able to produce widgets for a week? Is it our building catching on fire? Like, and, and that goes for IT and OT. But you, you start with those. You start with those at a high executive level of what are our, our really catastrophic consequences we care about? And then you map it down. For each one of those consequences, how could that happen? What sequence of events would cause that to happen? And then let's map it down a little bit further. What systems would be involved in that sequence of events? Are there digital systems involved? Are there things we can monitor? And you keep going down that chain until you come up with very specific hypotheses about what a bad person could do to cause those consequences. And you take into account things like hazard mitigation. So are there safety controls? Are there human controls preventing it? So, so what things prevent those things from happening? And then you end up with a list of these systems and subsystems and parts of your processes and your business that are super critical that you probably didn't identify as crown jewels before. And that's how you build monitoring and security in industrial environments. You don't necessarily care that your entire network is infected with Configure if it doesn't impact anything and cause a consequence you care about. You're not going to bring down your, your network that runs a $10 million a day production line just to patch windows for something that isn't impacting anything operationally and won't impact anything operationally. What you care about is consequences. And if you can understand that, if you can get your head around that as a defender, you can do a great deal in, in uh, OT cybersecurity. And secondly, the other thing that you're going to need to understand that we spend a lot of time on in my course and in the SANS courses is a lot of things have to be done passively. Monitoring, incident response, detection, threat hunting, they have to be done passively in industrial networks because we can't disrupt those networks. Yes, there are ways to do assessments and pen tests on digital twin systems or during maintenance outage windows, things like that, or very carefully scoped. But for the vast amount of cybersecurity work, we have to do it passively in, in OT. So you're going to have to learn how to work with Packet captures off span ports and taps. You're going to have to work about logs that are forwarded to you in various conditions. You're going to have to deal with, you know, not being able to install agents, which is something we've gotten very, very dependent on in, in Differ. Um, you can't do that in your industrial environment. You can't just go install CrowdStrike or, or uh, Carbon Black or something on all of the endpoints. It's not allowed or it's not supported. You just can't do that. So you're going to have to work around that and work with things in a much more passive way. Right. So, so to translate what you said on the offensive side, um, a essentially you're you're talking about doing threat modeling. Um, you know, trying to figure out what's the worst that can happen, showing mm -hmm. the impact on all of that, and then and and then coming up with a plan on how to how to address those things. And then the second one was essentially, uh, don't ever test in production. <laughs> yeah. Uh, red test, red teaming is a different beast in OT and in <laughs> ICS. And yes, there are people who do it every day and yeah. it's, it's challenging because those low level devices don't always have like fully formed protocol stacks. So if you send like a connection and you don't close the connection, the device just sits there and waits forever things like that. Or if you send it a function code, it doesn't know how to handle it, just freezes up. 
So they're very sensitive older devices in a lot of cases, not every case. There's newer stuff and more fully fledged systems out there. But um, for the most part, you're going to have to be a little bit more careful and strategic about how you do things in ICS. And that involves careful conversations with the people who run the process and run the plant and support those systems, even the vendors. Okay, fair enough. What would your recommendation be to people who are either interested in, in, in joining the blue team or are just starting out in blue team? What are, what are two or three tips you could, you could share to help them succeed on that first day? Get exposure to a lot of different stuff. And then using that exposure, pick a niche. And that exposure could be working in a SOC where you do a ton of different stuff or a help desk, or it could be watching a bunch of uh, videos of conferences, cybersecurity conferences or hacking conferences, or it could be participating in a bunch of CTFs and, and games on, on cybersecurity stuff. But get exposure to a lot of different areas of cybersecurity and start thinking about where you want to focus because, again, you're going to have to. And kind of in some ways, the sooner the better once you figure out where you want to go because you really, like red team, blue team, you have to make that decision pretty early on. You should know a little bit of both. Everybody should know some purple team stuff, but you can't know everything about both. You just can't. Nobody's brain is that is that big. You're, you're going to have to kind of focus. So, so get exposure to a lot of stuff and start figuring out what your, your journey is going to be. Um, participate in the community. You're listening to a podcast right now, so that's great. You know, find your ways of participating in the cybersecurity community because this is very, uh, very much a network driven, networking driven, human networking driven profession. Um, people tend to know one another still, even though it's a growing field, especially within niches. Um, reputation matters a lot. Um, and then your participation in the community can be a great boon to you when you're finding the jobs you want. And that could be social media, it could be participating in open source projects, it could be volunteering at conferences local to you or meetups, you know, all those different things are participation in the community. You can find one that works for you, but find some way to get involved in the broader cybersecurity community. Um, I think those are, are two really important places to start and understand that you're always going to need to keep learning. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes I see from job hunters is they get a, like, especially like a master's degree in cybersecurity and they stop. So they come into the interview and I ask them a question like, well, tell me about an incident in the news that you found interesting in the last year. That's well, pretty open-ended, right? Like most of us who are listening to this podcast can think of some cybersecurity incident that made the news that they thought were interesting. But, you know, some people just get that piece of paper and they're the paper tiger and they don't keep up at all. They just stop. They brain dump it all. And I ask them that and they're, they're talking about something from 2014. And like, where, where have you been? You don't have to be, you don't have to spend all of your free time trolling Twitter or, you know, you know, just, you know, being involved in every little thing in, in cybersecurity community, but you should at least be, you know, watching a, some kind of feed of, of cybersecurity news. I agree 100%. And I don't want to get in trouble on the podcast, so I won't go on a rant about everything you just said. Um, but yeah, I agree 100% to interact with the community. Um, I, I agree with, you know, never stop learning. Uh, I've interviewed several people who felt because they have a degree that they should be qualified for mid to senior level roles. And unfortunately, you know, I usually have to be the one to tell them that that's not how that works. Um, 
and yes, um, yeah, staying staying current with the stuff, uh, with with everything that's going on. I mean, it's not hard. It's it's all over the place from the internet to to the news. So yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. And I will follow up and say Twitter is a great place to meet and network with people. Yeah. Uh, Twitter does infosec twitter does have its <laughs> pitfall <laughs> but um but yeah it's definitely a great place to meet and network with people i mean that yeah. that's how i found that's how i found you that's how i found pretty much everybody um and and it was in a matter of like two or three years because i had twitter and i'm like okay this doesn't make any sense i'm not doing it and then i finally came back and i'm like i feel like i could have advanced probably advanced in my career a lot faster had I utilized, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn and stuff like that. So um, again, I agree 100%. So before we close, are there any parting words you would like to share with the audience? Yeah, you've got this. Um, if, if you're thinking about getting into ICS or just blue teaming or differ in general, you've got this, you know, have confidence in yourself. There's, there's people who know less than you who have a lot of confidence in your, in themselves. So we need people. We need people who want to learn and want to grow. Um, we're, we're usually just looking for that that willingness for junior people, especially. We're looking for that willingness to learn and keep learning. Um, and we look for that in, in how you've interacted with cybersecurity and the community and things like that. So you've got this. You can do it. Um, we, we hope to see you in conferences and in the workforce. Um, just, just keep at it. All right. So we're going to go ahead with that and close the show. I want to thank my guest again, my warrior, Leslie Carhart. Thank you for being a part of this team. Thank you for being on the show and sharing your experience. Um, please tell the people where to find you. Uh, so I'm Hacks for Pancakes on pretty much every social media. So wherever you're, we're your social media of choice. I have a website too that's linked on them. It's uh, tosiphony.net and I've got a blog there. I've got some guides, um, things like that. So, um, and I'm always willing to do um, speaking engagements, speak at colleges, speak in classes, uh, reach out to me and we can arrange something. Yes. And uh, congratulations uh, on a successful pancakes con that just happened uh, recently. Yes. So, uh, yes, I, I definitely have to make sure I, I participate in the next one. Awesome. I can't wait. Yes. Looking forward to it. But everybody watching, this has been another episode of Hacker Valley Blue season theme, The Defenders. I, like I said, I'm building my team. My team is, is, is growing it, and I'm feeling really strong about my team. So I want to thank my guest, Leslie Carhart. Hacks for Pancakes on everywhere. Wait, actually, I do have a side question. Is that, is it, how'd you come up with that name? <laughs> it's self-deprecating humor. I do a lot of volunteer work. It's like um, move, it moves for pizza. Like, ah. it's like, <laughs> I enough. do a lot of volunteer work. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, again, kudos to you for the volunteer work. And yes, please go follow her. Go check out her website. Go check out her conferences and her talks. They're all over uh, YouTube. And like I said, just give her a follow. I'm pretty sure she has a lot of followers, but it's well-deserved. So you. again, everybody watching, thank you. And I will see you next time with my newest member of the Defender team. Until then, stay safe and take care of yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hacker Valley Blue. Please remember to like it, subscribe to the channel, share it with your friends and colleagues and family members, get it all out there. 
Make sure you tune in for the next episode. Also remember to join our Discord server and you can talk to me and some of the other Hacker Valley family. And we also are going to do some things like exclusive events and ask me anything, sessions, and you name it. So make sure you go check us out over there too. And I will see you next time. Peace.